and welcome to Higher Justice, a podcast where we talk about power, privilege, and activism in higher education. I'm Dr. Nicole Martin. And I'm Dr. Ashley Sorrell. Today, we're talking to Dr. Shamara Kwachi, Assistant Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and African American and Africana Studies here at the University of Kentucky. In our conversation with Dr. Kwachi, we talk about black girlhood, how art and activism align in the classroom, and what it means to teach for hope. We hope you enjoy. Well, our guest today is Dr. Shamara Kwachi, who is an assistant professor of gender and women's studies and African-American Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. Her research analyzes historic and contemporary educational experiences of black women and girls. Dr. Kwachi's work emphasizes the interdisciplinary relationship between race, gender, sexuality, diaspora, and education, with a particular interest in how insights at this intersection inform transnational studies and educational critique. Dr. Kwachi is committed to crafting research and pedagogy that centers the voices of Black women and youth in the African diaspora by exploring their lived realities via ethnography, life histories, archival research, and performance. She is co-author and co-editor of the anthology Wish to Live, the Hip-Hop Feminism Pedagogy Reader, and she is currently working on a new book project called Saving Our Lives, Radical Pedagogy of Black Women in the Academy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Welcome. you guys for having me. Yeah. Um, let I want to start off by um, asking if you can talk more a little bit about how, what led you to your research on black women and girls? Yeah. Um, so I feel like I've been pre- preparing for this research topic my whole life. Um, I, so the long story um, I was an undergrad and I was majoring in sociology and ethnic studies, double majoring in things that were going to lead me to graduate school. Um, and I had a professor, I took a class on comparative ethnic studies and I wrote a paper on comparing African-American, um, struggles in the U S to Mexican-American struggles in the U S and like most undergrads, I flipped to the last page just to see, so she handed the papers back and I flipped to the last page to see um, what I got on the paper. And it was an A, but it was like, see me after class was a little note attached to it. And so I was like, damn it, what did I do? <laughs> um, and so she asked me what I wanted to do after I graduated. And I really had no idea. Um, I had been a business major and was horrified by some of the things I learned about capitalism as a business major. Um, and then kind of, fell in love, of course, with sociology and ethnic studies and had really no plans other than to become a teacher, a K through 12 teacher, in particular, probably like an English teacher or a history teacher and hadn't really decided on English or history yet. And so um, she was like, "Okay, you want to be a teacher? She's like, have you thought about being a professor? And I had no idea what professors did. Um, So she was like, "Okay," she's like, you should think about it and you should shadow all the women of color on campus that you possibly can and um i don't remember her name to this day but i shadowed all of the black women and the women of color in the college of arts and sciences particularly in the humanities side and took every class and most of them were in sociology and ethnic studies anyway um and took classes with them and it was there that i kind of figured out that there was all the these things that black women um, and girls had to know that nobody else 
kind of had to know or had to know it in this particular way. So I went to graduate school, decided I was going to do my PhD in education and met, um, I knew I wanted to write about black women in academia, but my dissertation originally was a historical focus. Um, and then shifted. I was working with this group called Saving Our Lives Here, Our Truth, Soul Hot. Um, and Ruth Nicole Brown was a postdoc when I was a PhD student at University of Illinois. And she put up this sign that said, do you want to work with girls? And I had been kind of plodding along in my coursework, um, knew that I was going to write this dissertation on black women in academia and had worked with girls all my life since I was a girl. Um, I worked at an all girls camp. Shout out to to uh, <laughs> Camp Hollywood Land in LA. Um, I worked there all throughout undergrad, had been a camper there. And so really knew like the power of, of women being in a collective space together. And so I was like, okay, this is just gonna extend kind of what I did in California. And it, it did extend it, but it was specifically working with black girls. Um, and it was just the kind of right space at the right time. She had written her dissertation on this space of a girls empowerment group in Michigan and how they were supposed to be doing girls empowerment work, but really were marginalizing the girls further in this programming. Um, and really thought of this was her praxis portion of her dissertation was to create a space that wasn't that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so decided to work with her. And in Champaign, to give a little context, in Champaign, Urbana at the time, black parents had gotten together in Champaign Unit 4 schools to sue the school district on race-based tracking practices. So I come into graduate school, I know I'm gonna do work on black women in academia. In the local area, black parents are suing the schools for tracking their kids. And for black boys, of course, it was in an overrepresentation in special ed. For black girls, it was in school suspension. Um, and expulsion for stupid things. And so cut to like Ruth Nicole creating this program, me knowing I want to do this, having this background and working with girls. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to devote my life to as a scholar. Um, and it was really working with the girls that I figured out the ways in which black women and girls kind of really live these overlapping lives that black girls are asked to be women a lot sooner than other children are asked to be you know grown um i want to jump yeah. in just ask a really quick question mm -hmm. so where did you do your undergrad you had talked yeah yeah um university of california riverside okay and you had talked about you know being told to go shadow all the black women yeah. professors yeah. on campus yeah. by a white woman yeah <laughs> by a white woman <laughs> and i how many we know that <laughs> black women, black people generally are underrepresented mm -hmm. in the academy, but mm -hmm. especially black women. So how many, hmm. how many were on campus? Um, so this was the thing. I wasn't, in undergrad, I wasn't as astute to know the difference. So I knew the difference between a graduate student and a professor, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the difference between a tenure track professor and an adjunct professor. Like, you got your PhD, I'm calling you doctor, I'm not really, I'm in your class, I'm not really kind of, um, so that to say, at the time, um, in the humanities and social sciences, there was one tenured black woman in the social sciences, Carolyn Murray, um, and two black women, um, and this is black women specifically, two black women that were tenure track professors. 
So Hershini Bonna Young and Anna Scott. And I took every single class I could with the three of them. Um, if we're talking about women of color, there were probably in the entire, both humanities and social sciences, at the time, probably six, mm -hmm. if you count all of them. So maybe, maybe seven. Um, yeah. In wow. the entire, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you had said something about um, in doing that shadowing work, you found you discovered that black women, mm -hmm. there was a, a wealth of knowledge that black women <laughs> didn't know, but what did you find out in that process? Yeah, so there were things that they had to know. They had to be able to read things a lot faster than other people. Um, so the ways in which administration shifts, so who was gonna be the chancellor, what they were gonna do, who was running the, the College of Arts and Sciences, what they were gonna do, mm -hmm. how to read a room um, in terms of faculty meeting. I how to read a room, a classroom, to figure out what, you know, these moments of of tension or when a student is gonna challenge you that I don't think other people had to really notice um, and really figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and they had to code switch. They had, to, you know, all of the things that, that you learn as a black woman um, being in this body on this earth that a lot of people don't have to even spend the time thinking about what they wore, how they wore their hair, all of these things, um, how much of their personal life they actually talked about, how much they didn't talk about it when they decided to talk about it, all of these things, um, how they presented the materials in class, what books they decided to read. Um, so things that I think some people may think about, you know, I think everybody kind of thinks about these things across the board, like maybe um, what how much we're going to have undergrads read maybe maybe i don't know um, <laughs> but the content right um was something that they had to think about mm -hmm. in ways in which i had never seen professors kind of labor over in front of students and so i became really good at my my advisor still to this day she was like you have this eye that you can read things you can see things on both sides as the student and as the professor and how we're constantly negotiating these things um, that a lot of people don't see when they see black women. Um, mm -hmm. And she was like, it's very humanizing in a, in a particular way that she's never seen. Mm -hmm. So, and I owe a lot of that to that process of, right. of shadowing them. Mm -hmm. right. I was an ethnographer before I even knew what the term was. <laughs> <laughs> so how does you've, You've started to touch on this, but how does your research, you know, not just the shadowing, but um, your research writ large, um, how did that shape your pedagogical values? Yeah, um, for me, seeing how undervalued those re how undervalued those skills were in Black women, um, and then working with Black girls, how undervalued their skills are in being able to read. Um, read the politics, read the room, read the read all of these things that people are not um, even thinking about inform the way I come into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I really rely, and students have a hard time adjusting to it because they've not been asked to think about what they're good at mm -hmm. um, and probably haven't thought about what they're good at outside of kind of traditional things. So right. um, yeah. 
And so they think reading is reading something on the paper. Mm-hmm. And I'm really asking them about their actual kind of bodily knowledge, um, how they read a room, This these multiple literacies that people don't even think about. And so asking them to use those and bring those into the classroom um, is something that I stand by because I've seen how it silences when people don't pay attention to the ways in which students come into the classroom, it silences them and kind of shuts them down. So on the first day, I'll ask them, um, how do you best learn? And it's a question that blows students' minds. Um, I'm like, so audio, visual, um, reading, art, like what are the things that really, you know, what's your jam? And and so they have, they have to think about it, but really wanting to honor the ways in which um, people come into the room Mm -hmm. and then incorporating that into the classroom everyday dynamics of the classroom so it's not always me lecturing but it's video it's a conversation it's storytelling it could be poetry making sure that all of those things kind of are honored in the space um and I really play to my strong suits I know what I'm good at and I push my boundaries you know um gotten a lot better with technology (laughs) um but really trying to make sure that I, I do the things that I'm good at and still push myself to do more. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm a storyteller. And so my students will tell you that I've probably bored them to death with stories, but they'll remember things for the rest of their lives um, mm-hmm. from that. So, How did you learn what you were good at? We're good at. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I've had people you know, the the fear as a graduate student is having your professor come and watch you teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had a couple of professors, people that I've worked for come and watch me and they've told me what I was good at. Um, so really what consistently what they've all said is really engaging the students and pushing them to kind of think as a as a class to move forward. Like it's not an individual reward space system that they don't have to like each other, but I tr- I make sure that I build community. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. Um, so that was one way students will tell me because they're not shy, either via evals um, or they'll just tell me via um, emails later. And so I, I try and think about those those things when I, you know, I'm the person that We'll read the evals, but like a semester or two later. Right. So that (laughs) my feelings aren't hurt right afterwards. Um, But really, and and really um, being reflexive about the process, I know when I bomb. Yeah. Um, And when it, you know, when I suck, I can, I can tell. So I'm, I'm usually my own harshest critic, but really the people who, who are in the classroom, and not necessarily the classroom, but the girls that I work with will tell me when something was great, when they loved it, and something that they absolutely hated. We don't want to do no more of that. So that kind of thing. So I'm like, okay, we don't, you know, what didn't you? And I'll ask questions. I ask for feedback. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I, I figured it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how do you um, how do you teach students to to learn about what they're good at? Yeah. yeah. Um, I try and make, so there's, you know, for the intro class, I've been teaching introduction to African-American studies for four years now. This is my probably like six times, six or seven times teaching the class. And for that class in particular, it's an intro class. Um, 
And so there has to be, I tell them there has to be some type of, I have to be able to see kind of these benchmarks, right? Um, so there's a midterm and there's a final, very traditional. Um, but one of the things that I try and do is always make sure that there's an assignment that that allows creativity um, and allows for the multiple intelligence. You have to do it in a group. Um, I shifted from a singular, you know, a singular project to where they have to do a group project. And I push them to kind of figure out within their group, like when you guys are meeting for the first time, you need to offer up what you're good at. So if you know that you're a poet, you need to say that. If you know that you draw, you need to say that. If you know that you're really a really damn good editor, you need to say that because there's going to be all of these components or you can bring all of these. There's always a written component. There's always some type of artistic component. So you need to be able to say what you're good at. If you're a tech person, you need to say that because there's no and they usually have a really hard time because there's not. There are components of the assignment, but I don't tell them how exactly to do it and so i i find the undergrads hate that but then they have to figure it out right what they're good at and they have to own it yeah um and i tell them don't be shy like your grade and this is where it right is is the incentive your grade depends on it right so that you honor the things that you're if you know you're good at these things or if you want to just try it like you're passionate about something but you haven't tried it that drive alone sometimes will get you to be good at something Mm -hmm. so really owning those things and so that's kind of I make it a part of the of the classroom I want to return to um this issue of community Mm -hmm. that you talked about I was wondering if you could tell us you know why do you think it's important to build community in the classroom environment and you mentioned you kind of do it unconsciously but if you could maybe walk us through um you know some practices you use to empower students and make them feel comfortable in the classroom yeah um a lot of think pair share stuff so i think students are not um when they come into a classroom space if they don't already know each other from some other classrooms, they're not as kind of push to engage each other. And so it's the little things like I'll present a lecture on the civil war. Okay. Now talk about it um, to each other. Cause one, they're usually afraid to talk to me about it. Um, but two, it's a, it's easier for them to kind of talk to each other. And I can tell the students who know each other, who don't know each other they kind of cluster together but by the end of the semester a lot of the think pair sharing stuff Mm -hmm. they're they'll hear other people say something and then they'll engage them on their own um like side conversations so somebody else said something oh yeah that's what we were saying over and so this it becomes kind of almost unconscious the way that they kind of group together another thing you know just kind of the corny icebreaker stuff Uh in the beginning of the semester um I do sometimes I do what I would do something I learned in soul hot with the girls is this thing called just because so it goes just because I'm blank doesn't mean I'm blank my name is blank and I am blank right Mm -hmm. and so they have to you know think about themselves and they have to share it with somebody that they don't know Mm -hmm. Um, and then usually there's questions about what they wrote in there just because And so just little things. And so throughout the semester, by the end of the semester, they're really kind of 
solidly even if they don't you know hang out with each other after <laughs> class um they'll they're inclined to at least say what's up to each other if they see each other right, on right. campus this semester because of all the political kind of unrest socially that's happening the classroom has functioned as a space for them to process it right and so you can't have a class like African intro to African-American studies and not be processing what's happening in the country. And so that also brings them closer together Mm -hmm. in ways that other classrooms might not be talking about it. And, and I don't say, I never tell them that it's a safe space. Like I can't guarantee you safety. That's just not what, in terms of emotional safety, um, but a protected space. So that means that you have to be accountable. I have to be accountable. We all have to be accountable. So that accountability is the protection. Um, and not the safety, right? right? So I think those types of things make community possible. The accountability to each other, me making sure that we're going to be accountable for the things that we say Mm -hmm. um, and do, and then just kind of the little things of of them being able to talk to each other and not always talking to me. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Um, (laughs) How are you, how are you, and your students, you know, responding to this time that we're living in. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I've taught through almost everything. I've taught through the George Zimmerman child. I've taught through Rainisha McBride. I've taught through Mike Brown. I've taught through so and so each class. Um, Walter Scott. I'm just thinking about all the people that we've processed in class together. Um, Yeah. Um, This semester with the election, but just with kind of the militarized police force killing Mm -hmm. of of black and brown folks. um, It's been it's been hard. Like, I've, you know, how do you show the murder, the murder of Emmett Till? and then have to talk about all of these other people that are happening yeah. right now, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's I try as much as possible to tell them, like, right, this is, I'm going to show these things. And so I remember having a conversation, and you were there, Nicole, where folks were saying they wouldn't show violence that's happened in America. And I'm like, I you yeah, yeah, that I'm going to show it. Um and this is going to be the space that we can process it. So it's been both. Like, I want them to know the history. I want them to be able to connect the dots and see how, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline and Flint mm-hmm. go together. Um, how, you know, the convict leasing is just been transformed into the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. I want them to be able to make those connections and, and be able to really process what's happening in real time, too. Mm-hmm. with kind of this historical knowledge. So it's it's definitely been rough. They come in the class and I'll tell sometimes them, y'all are funky. Like I can smell your energy, like the sadness and, all, you know, just the things on you. So you want to talk about it. And so they'll talk about it um, and allowing them that space to talk about it, but also bringing them, making sure they're making the connections to the material too. Um, so it's been rough, but I think their ability to process it and and they've decided to organize 
That's great. So that's, that's wonderful to yeah. hear. Yeah. So that I mean, for me, I my question on here was, you know, because you know, I've witnessed it too in a class that we I, I actually co-taught on the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the students of color came in um, the next day and you could just kind of yeah. see the feelings of sadness. And, and for me, I felt like a sense of hopelessness, yeah. you know, um, because, you know, race was undergirding a lot of this mm -hmm. election, you mm -hmm. know. So how do you inspire hope in your students yeah. how did you <laughs> get them to the point where you know what you know this isn't we can take action right yeah. we can do something yeah um I don't I never tell them not to be hopeless mm -hmm. because there are days that I wake up and just like none of this shit even matters um and so I I am very honest with them about that that hope is not something that you know I try and like demystify hope right like it's not the promised land all of the things that they've ever been taught about like in particular civil rights movement history um in these great speeches that we've heard and using kind of christian um notions of heaven and getting over in this life all of all of these things right that um that it can't be constructed in white supremacist terms mm -hmm. right and so that joy can't mean that you now look like the oppressor hope can't mean that you know it's about rogue capitalism and your opportunities to access it it has to mean something different and so really asking them to think about what hope means to them and what freedom looks like yeah. like freedom can't look like the thing that's oppressing us the right. very thing that's oppressing us and I think that's hard for them because so much of how we even frame freedom right you can't escape the matrix is that it's built around white supremacist notions mm -hmm. of, of freedom so being able to go wherever and do whatever mm -hmm. and um and this in particular like their notions of going to other places and i'm like y'all have seen what happens when you go and set up in other places right. um and so it can't look like that and so really asking them what it looks like and then they're like oh so this hope is like Sometimes it looks like survival. Right. Sometimes it looks like making it home safe and being happy that you did. Um, sometimes it means being able, you know, freedom means being able to hug the people that you love and tell them that you love them. Sometimes it means pushing pause and taking a break for yourself mentally. So logging out of social media, mm -hmm. um, not keeping yourself in this kind of, psychological space that you're constantly and this is not to avoid it but it's also like let me make sure i'm strong enough right and psychologically prepared enough to see these things and so it, it has to mean something different to them and so pushing them to kind of think about what hope would mean outside of, and you know most of the times they're just like okay we're gonna go think about that and that is really like that for yeah. me is just the most important thing that they pause and think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so much of what you're doing is, you know, centered around performance and embodiment. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, how do those things, performance and embodiment, yeah. help reshape or help your students reshape 
white supremacist notions of yeah. hope and freedom? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would have to ask them in part, I think. But some of it has really gotten them to think. Um, so having Nikki Finney come to class and talk to them about just I don't even remember what Nikki talked about because I was just sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that so I showed them and this is kind of the long answer I showed them Nikki's acceptance speech to the National Book Award where she starts talking about the ghosts well one she starts with talking about how it was outlawed by death to teach a black person to read in South Carolina South Carolina being one of the the only state to outlaw by death a slave learning how to read um and then her being in this space and all of her ancestors as ghosts being in this space um to see her accept this award and so she was like people show this and I don't know why they show it and that was the first thing she said to them but really asking them what were the things that they felt most dear to them like what were the things that they wanted to do and again right really saying it can't be these notions of white supremacists um ignore the people who tell you you got to go to school to get a good job and that kind of she's like those things are important but what is it that you're passionate about Mm. and how can you do that and make good for the people that look like you you know um and so her kind of starting the and she came very early in the semester starting it off like that and then me trying to continue that and push them to think about those things so it's really going back to kind of making them own the things that they're good at making them hold fast to those things um making them go to Bree Newsome making them go to see you know um Sean King anytime there's like extra folks on campus um that they can hear things from that are not me so after Bree Newsome spoke one of my students was like, so this was basically your whole lecture for the semester <laughs> in like 40 minutes that Brie Newsom gave. Um, how to organize, teaching them really how to organize. I'm like, y'all, it's not about like, so they were like, so we need to draft up a memo. And I was like, no, this is, what are you, who are you, who are you sending this memo to that's gonna give a shit? Like, I'm sorry, that's gonna care, right? Like. Who are you? The only memo you need to be, I'm like, hit the group me, where we meeting at, what's going to be the direct action that we're doing, um, or what's going to be the program that we're putting on for us. It can't be, in the beginning of the semester, it was like, we need to educate our white peers about racism. And I was like, no, I actually don't think that that's the best way to spend your time, actually. I think the best way to spend your time is organizing for the sake of each other right um and organizing with people who are already committed in this same you know there's a time and a place to have conversations with folks that have different viewpoints but as the oppressed person like it can't be your job your whole job you know to teach Mm -hmm. people that how they're oppressing you like no that's that seems yeah futile and so really pushing them kind of around those things to see it as 
as something that they need to do for themselves. Um, I don't know if that answers. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you, how you talk. I think there's sort of a romanticized notion of activism. Yeah. Yeah. And so, (laughs) so I'm wondering how you reshape, you know, this idea of organizing yourself with your students and if there's any relationship between you know, in-class organization and their relationship to their local community. Yeah. So I asked them at the beginning of the class, what do you know about Lexington? And most of them know nothing. Right. Um, and it's, I tell them that's by design. Like you're not supposed to know anything. We keep you in kind of this walled off bubble on purpose. Um, and and try and talk to them about some of the things that are happening in Lexington. Um, I asked them, what do they know about their hometowns that's going on right now? And some of them know some things, um, but some of them don't. And, and really trying to push them to think about these little things. Like, they really want activism to be sexy. Like, they want to be the next Sean King. They want to be, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I would never, you guys don't. It takes a particular type of person to be that person. Um, and I'm so happy that Brie Newsom kind of broke all these things down in her talk that activism is it's not really sexy. And so she walked them through how she took down that flag mm-hmm. in South Carolina, that it was planned. She didn't just show up here. Right. And just decides that they planned it, that she went with a white man that was dressed in a construction worker's uniform. She learned how to climb the pole days before, you know, she had. So all of these things. Right. So that it's not like this mystery. Um, and I try and make sure. So the bus boycott in, you know, Rosa this, Parks, Rosa Parks didn't just, didn't just sit down. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. so many people had tried it before. Yeah. Um, and really kind of demystifying all these things that they think um were really like yeah and people just I'm like yeah no like mm-hmm. these were planned strategic things mm-hmm. Bobby Seal telling mm-hmm. them these were planned mm-hmm. strategic things we had to know the law like somebody had to know the law somebody had to know this somebody and so right really bringing back what do you bring to the table mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of community so if you know Bobby talking about having who was he talking about was he talking about I can't remember did you guys go to the Bobby Seal talk I can't remember if he was saying that he had Huey come and talk or if Huey had him come and say this poem right but like thinking about how a poem in Oakland California during this rally is setting off people um and so really thinking about what everybody brings to the table and how we can Mm -hmm. use that indirect action um and pushing them to think about right it takes a it's a process and so this one class that i taught um black feminism a part of the class was to create right this protest so we found the free speech zone on campus they had to have something written already before i had to read it Mm -hmm. you know i bought megaphones (laughs) so they could have megaphones and we stood there as a class while each group did their piece. So one one piece was about the way that people look at black women on campus, mm-hmm. just in everyday passing. Um, one was a letter to their future daughters. 
one was a reading of the names of all the people that had been killed by police officers. Mm -hmm. And so they had to do, and so really kind of demystifying like this, the sexiness, like, yes, we just show up here. Like, no, Mm -hmm. there's never been anybody in the history of activism that's just kind of showed up someplace and done something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what makes performance or art yeah. so particular? And I'm thinking about the work that you do with the Girl Project. Yeah. Um, it's something that everybody can access. And, and whether it's they can actually do it or whether they can actually access it in terms of understanding it and seeing it and taking it in. Um, and I like that about performance. It's something that we all do in everyday life we may not want to own up to it and admit it right but it's something that we all already do um and so in the girl project the girls are kind of taken through a process of of learning kind of the of building a feminist consciousness right and so they're Mm -hmm. being exposed to the media media literacy they're being exposed to um thinking being reflexive about their own lives and then creating a performance around those things where they actually write said scripts um before you go into it too deeply i yeah. just realized that i yeah. just sort of dropped the girl project and yeah, yeah. About what the girl project is yeah so the girl project is a, a project that takes girls in the ninth grade so they can either be ninth going to 10th or eighth going to ninth grade up through the 12th grade where we take them for about a month the process has changed before it was once a month for about nine months and then culminating in a performance. And now it's changed to about four and a half weeks mm-hmm. um, of just kind of, again, being exposed to media literacy, being exposed to reflexivity, all types of, of creative art. So they'll ha- last year there was a puppet artist that came in and worked with the girls. Um, there's been songwriters, there's been movement experts, um, there's been a hip hop producer, shout out to Renee Saul, um, that's worked with the girls to create kind of their own art that speaks to their lives. And they've made some really, really incredible things. Last year's cast, I didn't get to work as closely with. So that was summer 20, 2015's cast is the cast that I was the closest with. And I mean, just amazing talking about trans issues, talking about rape talking about um, just kind of how their feminist consciousness was born and developed Disney princesses. So what would, right? Like what (laughs) writing back to Disney about how, how they see these princess notions, but performance is one of the things that um, a lot of the girls initially, it's about a 50, 50 split. So some of the girls have been performing all their lives in theater and some of them have not. And so the girls who have been very used to performing have typically been used to performing other people's work, right? So hairspray, like the mm-hmm. typical kind of things that high school theater will bring right. up, it, but it's never been their own words or somebody else's that they've known this closely. Mm-hmm. And so that means something different for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girls who have no theater expertise getting up on stage Right, who may have been, and typically it's usually they're the really good writers, right? right? The girls who have no theater expertise are the really good writers. So getting up to actually perform 
and standing in front of people and offering up right your body um as a site of just all of the things memory creativity activism um and so it's a really it's something that I've I've been doing for a long time. I've been I performed. I was one of those church people, little <laughs> culture girl that performed in church. Um, and so I've seen what what the power of performance has over the people that are actually doing it, but also the audience. And so it's one of those things that I try to make sure I incorporate into any classroom that I'm in. Mm-hmm. My graduate students hated me, by the way, this semester. What? Did you incorporate a performance aspect? Could yeah, so talk? the graduate students had to do an autoethnography about their lives. Wow. Um, and it could have been one moment in their life. And it could have been, um, so the class was titled Bodies as Activism, oh, right? And so I yeah. was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I am like the, been deemed the performance person in my, my department. So I'm like, of course you're going to get up and perform. And it wasn't like elaborately staged, but they had to stand in front of us and perform. And some people really got into it, brought props. Other people were super nervous, mm-hmm. um, but they did it was the most important thing. And mm-hmm. I got, I learned a lot about people. And I think that also created a sense of community because mm-hmm. you share, you share a part of your life in that particular way. Um, what kind of transformations do you see in the students or in the girls mm-hmm. in the girl project mm-hmm. through this process and during and maybe after the performance as well? Yeah. Um, goodness. So because I'm like all of my worlds are merging together. So I have the girl project, what I do here on campus um, in the classroom. And then I have Soul Hot here in Lexington. Um, Soul Hot Lex has just done a semester of art projects and we got a grant through the Kentucky Foundation for Women to do art with the girls and Mm so we did a chalkboard wall right where we bought me and my research assistant Mecca McGuire bought pieces of plywood painted them and this was their protest wall Mm. Um, and the Lyric Theater has agreed to exhibit all the girls art in two parts and so telling them from the from kind of the get-go that you guys were going to be exhibiting your art and having them think of themselves as artists um was really it was funny because they were like you know these girls are range from like five to twelve um and they were like you mean (laughs) (laughs) like the museum and I'm like yeah (laughs) and then they're just like okay whatever and and get to the protest wall like we want no homework (laughs) right like so what were the things that were really important to them and I don't know that the the girls would necessarily see themselves as artists, mm-hmm. but I think it'll be interesting to see come January, come February when their their work is exhibited, if they'll really see themselves um, as artists. So for the students on campus here, in my introduction to AFAM class, they had to get, they had to do projects, art projects that spoke to one of the themes in class, um, and do a write up in terms of. How did you guys use solidarity? How did you use one of the themes in the class? Mm -hmm. And then in terms of what you created, they had to create it as if they were going to give it and put it it was going to be in special collections. And so we had special collections librarians come and talk. Um, Ruth and Raynette came Mm -hmm. to talk to the class about that. And I don't know that they would see themselves as artists, but I think they've become a lot clear about what they're good at. Mm -hmm. and how to do that work and the same thing with the graduate students like I don't know that they would say that they're performers 
Um, but I think that they appreciate, they all appreciate the process and the girl projects, you know, it's four, four and a half weeks, five weeks of being together with a group of people. Um, and it's clear every time with the girl project that they appreciate that space and being in, in community with each other. Um, and I think a lot of them across the board will, they're no longer afraid to try something new. And so that for me is the yeah. most important thing. So that's, and that's the most consistent thing that they're not afraid now to try something that they never thought that they would do um, and do it without kind of letting fear stop them. So right. that, that's the most kind of important yeah. thing. And that's the thing that's most continuous across the board. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> but, but the thing is, right. Is that there are so many other people doing it with you. Okay. That yeah. you're not by, and so, and that's, it's by design, right? Is yeah. that people are a lot more likely to try something in a group mm -hmm. than they are for good or for bad, right? Right. Than they are by themselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it, it, it gives them the courage and the permission to do it um, later by themselves right. in ways. Yeah. And it's very important for me. It's important for, all of the groups that I've worked with are marginalized, right, in some way. And so having that sense of solidarity and community, but really then creating, being able to go off by yourself. Everything I ever learned of importance and value, I learned in community with folks. Mm -hmm. Everything. Every single thing. Yeah. And so there's nothing that I don't owe back to some collective of folks. Yeah, that's great. Um, I was talking to a colleague of ours about, you know, um, learning objectives mm -hmm. and how we write them to be um, measured. Yeah. So there's yeah. an assessment <laughs> yeah. part of a yeah. learning objective. But yeah. for you, it seems like this focus on community is not necessarily something that you can measure. measure. Yeah. So how... So how do you negotiate that? That yeah. community is such a key component to what you're trying mm -hmm. to teach the students, mm -hmm. but it's not something that can be assessed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I don't, it's not a learning objective on the syllabus. It's right. in getting the grant. Um, Cause you know, you have to be responsible back to the funders about how. And so we were talking about measurable goals. Like how can we measure mm -hmm. that the girls have fun in this project? Right. Um, what did they learn? And so really figuring out how to translate. It's become a part of me learning how to translate things. So it might not be, um, so it might not look like community on the page, right? It might look like, did the group turn in their work on time, right? Did, you know, how well did you guys work together? And so it's something that I also mm -hmm. kick back to them, right? Is there somebody slacking off? Um, and I don't put those things explicitly in, in anything. Um, but I make them meet with me twice. Right. So did they, did they show up as a collective with me twice? Right. So that's, mm -hmm. I'm filing that away. Um, did they turn in their materials on time? Right. And so mm -hmm. it becomes about these like little check marks 
but in my mind, like the less I hear about so-and-so, like if I don't get any emails that like so-and-so is not showing up right. or if it's somebody, you know, I, I do get those, but it's usually the person that's dropped the class and didn't tell anybody. For the most part, they all kind of feel connected to each other and want to see each other succeed. And so I don't have to police them. They'll police each other Mm -hmm. um, and they'll push each other. And so it becomes like these. I have to think about how can I frame this on the page as something that I can actually check. Like if somebody were coming to evaluate my class that they could easily check off. But then I also have to translate it back to like, okay. I didn't hear anybody saying that John sucked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And students should, will usually tell yeah. you. <laughs> and he right. showed up for said thing, right? They show, and I, you know, sometimes, and I've given them opportunities to talk about like where the problems were in their group, and I've built it into the assignment, right? So that it's not kind of this thing that they don't know. And I allow the person to, so it's built into the assignment, like write a paragraph each of you write a paragraph about how you felt like the group worked together. Mm-hmm. What are the common threads across everybody's work? What are the things that need to be addressed? So that they see it themselves, mm-hmm. but it's working itself out on the page and it's turned into this thing that's a part of the assignment. And so, yeah, it's not measurable in this kind of way, but I figure out kind of like what are the things that I can translate it to on paper that right will look like it's individual or collective things, but it's really about community and working together. Yeah. Yeah. Be a little sneaky. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to, you know, the lessons that you learned yeah. mm-hmm. at the very beginning mm-hmm. about like this, how women of color in the academy yeah. need to respond and react and redress mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, some of the traditional ways of constructing knowledge yep. and being, you know, valued in mm-hmm. this institution. Yeah. And I try and teach them the ways to make themselves legible, mm-hmm. um, but only when you want to be and only if you feel like you need to be. That legibility of, of other folks should not be contingent upon your freedom, like how well you read to somebody else shouldn't be something that um, should be contingent upon whether or not you're free. And so when and where you make yourself legible and how is is up to you and you have that power. Yeah. Well, we have a few, just a couple more minutes. Um, I have just sort of a last question mm-hmm. where, you know, the episode is Pedagogies of Hope. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what do you hope for, um, in the classroom and in the university space? Yeah. Um, in the classroom, I really hope in terms of how students leave, um, that they will know, right, that we you know to borrow from june jordan we are the ones that we've been waiting for um that they really have and possess a power to not only kind of do anything um but to be anything and they really have to that they have to really know that you have to have community 
and be in solidarity with folks in order to be or do those things, right? That none of us get here alone or by ourselves. And that's important. Um, And really owning their talent and their skills and making them useful um, for themselves, right? But also useful in service to other folks. And so my hope is that they, they know that. Like these little seeds that that hopefully they've planted with each other and I've planted with them, that they will reap them for the rest of their lives. Um, Because so much of the work in the classroom, I think um, folks count like on them knowing said things. And of course them knowing, right, some things. So I'm like, you cannot get out of my class without knowing that the loophole to the 13th amendment is except as a form of punishment. Mm-hmm. Like if you know nothing, so there are these things that I want them to know about American history um, that are really, really important. But I also need them to know like the tangible things about themselves that are really important too. Um, but my hope is that they use that, that they use those things that they've learned about themselves, that they've learned about working in community with each other to make it, to make life for themselves better and life for folks um, that they're in community with better. In the university space, I mean, this is a corporate structure. I tell the students that all the time. Um, And so I'm like, we're all in cahoots with capitalism. And so, you know, without sounding like a fatalist, right? This is my job. Um, This is what I do for a paycheck. So, I don't know that the university will change. Um, And I'm not going to wait for it to change. Like I I need to do this work of freedom making regardless. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully they'll catch on. Um, Ruth Nicole always says like black girls been on that. We've been free. Like we've been well beyond that. Like we just waiting for everybody to catch up. So I'm waiting for the (laughs) university to catch up. Like really catch up. Because the things that we kind of say we're invested in, you know, there's going to come a time where you have to really put all of your money where your mouth is and, and really show that and show and prove. And I think we, we're skating because we don't want to have hard conversations. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that the university will, will catch up and, and get ready for the hard conversations. But in the meantime, you know, I'll still be doing what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. And we thank you for it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this season. Thank you all so much for joining us and um, talking. Well, you didn't really talk, but we talked about race in higher education. (laughs) We hope to bring you more conversations next year, more innovative pedagogical strategies, more anti-racist practice more everything um yeah thanks and as always we want to thank the amazing folks here at uk's faculty media depot alex cuddedine and stan rosenbaum for all their help in producing this season's podcast and we want to hear from you what you liked what you didn't like what you want to see more of so feel free to reach out to us You can visit our website, find our contact information, www.uky.edu slash CELT, C-E-L-T slash podcast. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at UKSELT using the hashtag HigherJustice or like us on Facebook at UKSELT. We will see you next season.